this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello everyone and welcome back to the hindu's in focus podcast i'm pj george your host for today in focus is returning after a short summer break with important developments in russia on june 24 the ongoing ukraine russia war took a surprising turn as Russia's Wagner private military company, a paramilitary organization, rebelled against the Russian establishment led by Vladimir Putin. The rebellion led by Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of Wagner, claimed control over Russia's southern military district headquarters in Rostov-on-Don, a city near the Ukrainian border. And then they began a march towards Moscow. Mr. Prigozhin claimed it was a march for justice, alleging mistreatment by Russia's military establishment. The Wagner Group is a mercenary organization that was involved in Russia's annexation of Crimea and has operations in Africa and West Asia. The attempted coup, however, melted away after negotiations that involved Belarus. To help us understand the import of these events and what it means to the Russia-Ukraine war and to Putin himself, we have here with us Stanley Johnny, the Hindu's international affairs editor. Okay, Stanley. So let's start with the basic question here. what prompted this mutiny what prompted uh, prigozhin to march to moscow george this has been going on for quite some time as we all know because uh, at least from february prigozhin has been constantly attacking russia's defense establishment even last year when russian forces were forced to withdraw from uh, kharkiv and kherson and then prigozhin blamed shoigu basically the defense ministry for the poor planning and execution of what the russians call special military operation i think at that time putin found it convenient to have a criticism among his generals because the war was not going on as they expected you know uh, i think the russians wanted to take a quick victory instead it dragged on with occasional setbacks and limited territorial gains Uh, so prigozhin's attack on the defense establishment uh, the kremlin continued to tolerate it but in february what happened in february was that in uh, a few weeks earlier in jan the wagner took soledar soledar was the first battlefield victory for the russians in months after they took over severodonetsk last summer and uh, you know after that uh, he started directly attacking the defense establishment and when the feud was escalating putin by that time i think uh, putin had decided to side with uh, the top defense brass because in january immediately after soledar was taken over by wagner putin decided to elevate garasimov uh, who was the uh, you know chief of general staff uh, he made him in charge of the special military operation so this basically intensified the feud between the top defense brass and wagner and throughout the battle of bakhmut you know bakhmut battle went on for 9 months it is one of the bloodiest and longest battles of 21st century and wagner eventually won the battle you know which was russia's second major battlefield victory in months after soledar and now bakhmut interestingly both victories were led by wagner so the victory in bakhmut uh, i think that strengthened prigozhin's standing in russia's complex power dynamics and he lashed out at shoigu and uh, gerasimov 
know, he used to abuse them. He would say that he lost 25,000 of his men because the Russian defense ministry was not sending ammunition. He said that the Russian defense ministry's plan was to exterminate Wagner in Bakhmut, in the meat grinder of Bakhmut. So, you know, after Bakhmut fell, basically the feud was uh, spiraling out of control, even out of control for the Kremlin. And there were occasional incidents of fighting between these two, between the regular Russian army and Wagner. While Wagner was retreating from Bakhmut, Prigozhin claimed that they came under fire. And Wagner, you know, arrested one regular Russian soldier and filmed him talking about how he was treated by uh, the Russian defense forces. So it was all in Telegram. It was all there for the Russian people to consume. So this, you know, what seemed to be a controlled feud between uh, President Putin's generals was spiraling out into an ugly battle between the defense establishment and his favorite mercenary warlord, you know. Uh, but I think the trigger was that immediately after Bakhmut fell, Wagner took over Bakhmut. Shoigu, the defense minister, issued, a, issued an order on June 10th. Bakhmut fell in the last week of May. On June 10th, the defense ministry issued an order asking all, all paramilitary groups, all voluntary armed forces to sign contracts with the defense ministry. Basically, Shoigu wanted to bring Wagner under the defense ministry's command. This, Prigozhin saw this as an attempt to take his base away from him, as an attempt to dismantle the entire Wagner paramilitary force. Uh, and I think this is what triggered the mutiny. And Prigozhin was a Putin ally. Everybody knew that. Prigozhin is a creation of Putin. He built Wagner with Putin's blessings. And Wagner is a very important geopolitical tool for the Kremlin. So Prigozhin has taken a risky step, you know, which might have put his life in danger, post security challenges to Kremlin, etc., etc. But he took a risky step. So he moved on to take over the southern military headquarters in Rostov and then ordered his march of justice towards Moscow. So basically what he wanted to tell the Russians and the whole world was that everything is not in order. And then he wanted basically to bring the whole crisis into the direct attention of Putin. For that, he took a risk and created a major crisis. But this crisis has been, it's been brewing for quite some time. And surprisingly, the Kremlin failed to stop this. In an analysis that you wrote immediately after the events of uh, the day, you had mentioned about an interview sometime back in which uh, Putin had said the one thing that he cannot forgive is betrayal. And this sort of matches with that. Uh, what was Putin's response to this? Yeah, interestingly, Putin said this in 2018. And the Russian TV, state TV telecast this, you know, which I think as a warning to those who revolted, that's why the state TV is doing this. So Putin was asked very pretty dramatically, Putin was asked by uh, the interviewer, are you a forgiving person? And Putin says, yes, I do. I can forgive, but not everything. So what is the one thing that you can't forgive? To which Putin says, treachery or treason or betrayal, whatever. And you see what happened immediately after Prigozhin started his rebellion. So he took over the southern military headquarters, which is a very important military headquarters because 
Uh, it is the Rostov headquarters that was overseeing the special military operation in Ukraine. You know, basically the Ukrainian invasion. So Wagner took over the headquarters, took the airfield under its control, and some 5,000 Wagner men uh, set off this march of justice. And they faced some resistance, some limited resistance, and then they shot down some six Russian helicopters and killed at least a dozen airmen. So this crisis was unfolding, right? And Putin immediately went to the state TV. He addressed the nation. He called it a betrayal. He called it a stab in the back of the Russian state. Pretty harsh words for the Russian president to speak. And then he said that he has ordered his security services to crush the rebellion. But now we know that he didn't do that. So, I mean, the question before us is that if Putin wanted talks to resolve the crisis, why did he escalate it in the first place? Why did he go to the TV? Why did he call it betrayal? Why did he call it a knife in the back? And then what he actually did was to turn to Alexander Lukashenko, who's his, you know, longtime ally and president of Belarus. And Lukashenko held talks with Prigozhin. And apparently they cut a deal. So what Putin has effectively done here is that first he escalated. I think that itself was a miscalculation. He addressed his fellow citizens. He told them that this is betrayal and uh, mutiny, treachery. And then he went back to talk to the guys who betrayed the state. And he allowed Lukashenko to cut a deal with Prigozhin. And as part of the deal, Prigozhin is now walking free. So this is something that is unheard of in Putin's Russia, right? Alexei Navalny is still in jail. Boris Navastov is dead. So whoever has challenged Putin, either they don't exist or they are in prison. So Russia is a very tightly held state where dissent is not allowed. But here, somebody is launching a march with armored vehicles and heavily armed men towards Moscow, forcing the Kremlin to cut a deal with him, and then he is walking free. So this is what Putin has done. So I think this, you know, of course we can say Putin yesterday, last night he made another address to the nation. He said that the rebellion uh, would have been crushed, but he did not want to avoid bloodshed, which is fine. Uh, I think that's how uh, a state of head of the state should behave, especially uh, while uh, he is faced with an internal crisis. But after calling it a betrayal, after calling it a knife uh, in the back, after ordering his security forces to crush the rebellion on the TV, what he did was to cut a deal secretly. That shows signs of weakness in Putin's administration. I think that is an important point here. So do we know more about the terms of the deal? Will Shoigu and Gerasimov uh, be moved out? Uh, what are the terms of the deal that we know of? So we have three statements now. Uh, the first statement was issued by the presidency of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, who held the negotiations. So according to uh, Belarus government, Prigozhin would turn away from his march towards Moscow and he would relocate to Belarus. And then Prigozhin himself issued a video statement. He issued two, 
issued one immediately after the statement from Belarus came out and then he issued another audio statement last evening on Telegram. So what Prigozhin says was that it's over. He said the rebellion is over. He confirmed Belarusian statement that his troops would be taking a U-turn and would go back to their base, would leave even the headquarters in Rostov. And he said that they wanted to dismantle Wagner PMC. And I would never allow that to happen. And in yesterday's audio statement, Prigozhin said that his mutiny was never a mutiny. He said he was not marching against the Russian state or challenging Putin was never his intention. He said he did this because his troops came under attack. He lost dozens of his men because Russian regular forces attacked them. So that's why he said that he launched the March for Justice. So that's what his narrative is. And then you have a statement issued by basically a press, a press conference you know, addressed by Dmitry Peskov, who is the spokesperson of the Kremlin. Uh, it is Peskov's press conference that offered little details about the deal. So we still don't have the real picture. Because if you look at Prigozhin's demands, you know, his most important demand was that Shoigu and Garasimo should be fired. He called them corrupt elites. He called them liars, incompetent, corrupt people, corrupt oligarchs. So he wanted them out. He also said that Putin was misled into launching the war. So basically he was attacking, uh, you know, the regime itself. He said that the real threat Russians were facing was uh, from these corrupt oligarchs who are sending Russian men as cannon fodder into the front line without a proper plan and competence. So basically he attacked the special military operation and he wanted Shoigu and Garasimo to go. So we don't know that yet, whether they would go, because, uh, you see, according to uh, Peskov, changes, within quotes, changes of personnel in the Ministry of Defense were not discussed. This is what Peskov said. But Peskov also said that uh, the criminal case imposed on Prigozhin would be dropped, and Prigozhin would relocate to Belarus. And those Wagner soldiers who did not join the mutiny can sign contract with the Ministry of Defense. So basically, the MOD's plan to integrate Wagner with the regular Russian forces is still on. And Wagner will have to, and, and Prigozhin will have to go in exile in Belarus. And we don't know, we, don't, we still don't have clarity about what will happen to Shoigu and Garasimov. So I think for that, this, the, these are the facts we have. But I think this is only the beginning. We still don't know the whole picture. We still don't have the whole picture. We will have to wait and see what Putin is going to do next. Because Putin essentially, all said and done, Putin is a survivor. And you have seen this, Putin avoids this immediate knee-jerk responses. He takes his time and strikes back. So how is he going to strike back? Or what he would do to restore order uh, in his internal circle is what I think everybody is waiting to see. So for that, I think we have to wait. To, we have to wait for the full picture to emerge. But as of now, with the limited facts we have, what we know is that Prigozhin is relocating to Belarus 
we don't know how many of his men would follow him you know because he still has an army of 25000 heavily armed forces whether all of them would move we don't know we don't know how many of wagner would sign up with the defense ministry and we don't know what will happen to those wagnerites who joined the mutiny prigozhin has got uh, immunity but we don't know about uh, the regular fo- the, the wagner forces who joined the mutiny so i think we have limited facts and we have to wait for the full picture to emerge so what does this mean for putin's grip on russia and his control over the narrative of the war itself and uh, would the other states particularly the western nations see this as a weakening of putin something where they can come in and intervene much more and also what does this mean for prigozhin himself where does he go from here so uh, george i saw two dominant narrative narratives about the whole crisis so one especially among the pro russian circles is that prigozhin did this with the blessings of putin the whole thing was a drama because uh you know this would eventually help putin in the demos- domestic russian politics he can use this to weed out his critics the incompetent generals or whatever and or this could be a psyop etc uh, etc et this is one narrative because this this shows that you know th- this narrative is that the whole crisis uh, doesn't show putin's weakness rather puts him as a clever strategist who has orchestrated the whole drama to strengthen his position in russia's domestic politics this is one narrative and the other narrative is that putin is gone his regime is crumbling he is facing a serious internal challenge you know his authority has been crippled uh, this is the other narrative so i take the middle path you know i don't think the whole drama has been orchestrated i think this is a genuine political and security crisis because you know if you look at prigozhin statements and if you look at the way he launched the march he may not have directly attacked putin but he's been attacking the system which putin built he's been attacking the war which putin ordered so indirectly he is targeting putin he is targeting the order the constitutional order of russia which putin has always defended right so he was calling he was abusing the defense minister he was abusing the uh, you know an army chief at a time when the ukrainian counter offensive is on along the 1000 plus kilometer long front line so this is a serious crisis and also he was he's not even a general he is a private military company head and a private military launching a march towards moscow challenging the state institutions is not something that is expected in, in in a country of order that shows that speaks more of chaos rather than order so uh, so I, i i i don't think the whole thing has been orchestrated i think this is a genuine crisis and on the other side i you know i, I think the arguments that this will lead to an immediate collapse of the regime etc etc has been exaggerated you know but at the same time this shows what this tells us this tells us is that uh you know the unity of putin's regime that is facing challenges from within you know because there are there are chinks in the armored regime though those chinks have been exposed 
because till now the message putin has sent out to the world was that he is in charge and i think that he likes to show the world that he is in charge remember the national the televised national security council meeting a few days ahead of the war on february 24th uh, in which putin was giving orders to everybody from patrushev to uh, the defense intelligence chief to the fsb chief to the you know to everybody so he presented himself as the boss who was ordering around his subordinates so he wanted to send that signal that he is in charge and now what we saw is that two of the clans in of his administration wagner may not be officially part of the government but wagner is an important geopolitical tool for putin remember wagner has established deep presence in africa across africa so where russia could extend its influence expand its influence without actually committing regular russian troops and wagner has been ruthlessly effective uh, during the war russian troops suffered humiliating defeats last year in kharkiv and herson but it was wagner that took soledar and bakhmut for the russians this year so wagner has been effective on the on the front line so this is also the dilemma putin faced right this this also explains us why he didn't go out to crush wagner and prigozhin's attack on putin uh, attack on the regime attack on the oligarchs prigozhin's attack on corruption and plus along with the battlefield victories of wagner i think uh, has made wagner popular at least among the nationalist sections of russian society so this is this is one one dilemma putin faced throughout the crisis and then uh, what what he is trying to do is now uh, he is he is trying to buy peace but this also tells us that uh, as we discussed earlier after calling it a betrayal when he opted for peace through negotiations negotiations uh, and he gave amnesty uh, to the wagner chief that also shows that also shows that his uh, you know there are uh, chinks in the uh, armored regime of putin so what he has to do now is that of course he has to win the war he has gone all the way in he can't afford to lose the war because losing the war would create consequences right like even a protracted war is now creating uh, uh, undesirable consequences for putin so one major argument about the whole ukraine operation was that uh, putin is ready to fight a long war but whether the west is ready to stay committed for a long war because basically uh, you know the ukrainian armed forces are propped up by the west right ukraine has suffered huge casualties throughout the war but they were being supplied by advanced weapons by the west which is what is allowing them to continue the operation so the question we we always faced was whether the west would be able to stay invested in ukraine for a long period if putin is fighting for a long war fight, fighting a long war but now another question we face is that the long war is also creating strains for putin's regime at home so will putin be ready to fight a prolonged war is the question we face especially after the wagner mutiny so i think these are the these are the questions that uh, that are arising out of the conflict and with regard to prigozhin as you asked what would happen to prigozhin i think we have to wait and see because as we saw we have on the one side putin uh, telling us that he never forgives betrayal but on the other side we also know that uh, wagner has been uh, an important geopolitical tool for the russians and prigozhin has been allowed to go into exile in belarus 
we don't know what kind of a role Prigozhin is going to play in Belarus. Uh, so for those details, we have to wait and see. But my sense is that Prigozhin has crossed a red line by launching the mutiny, irrespective of his relationship, his past relationship with Putin. And if Putin consolidates at home and abroad, Prigozhin might face consequences. So I think that gives us a pretty clear picture of what happened and what it means and what next. But uh, since this is Putin, there is always that element of unpredictability. Stan, thank you for uh, coming in and as usual, giving us a very clear picture of what is happening. Thank you for joining us once again on In Focus. Thank you, George. Pleasure. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.